Hi, everybody. Tyler here. I'm happy to announce that RPGBot.net has been nominated for an any in Best Online Content for 2022. Winners are selected by an online vote from members of the community like you, so we need your help to take home the award. If we could ask you for a moment to vote for us and for other great creators in the Ennies, that would be a huge help. We'll have links in the show notes. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Welcome to the RPGBot.News. I'm Randall James, and with me is Tyler Kamstra. Hi, everybody. And Ash Eli. Hey, guys. All right, Tyler, what news are we newsing today? Well, today we're going to talk about the recent released Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel. This is the uh, new adventure from Wizards of the Coast for 5th edition D&D. Um, it's been delayed for a bit over a month, and uh, yeah, it Hotly anticipated, delayed for a bit due to, you know, COVID-related supply chain issues. But yeah, this is a really exciting adventure, and I'm, I'm happy to finally have it in my hands. It's, it's a little crazy. Like, okay, we're nowhere near the end of COVID. It's just life now. But given how far we've come through it, help me remember, have we had any other delays like this? Yes. Uh, the rules expansion gift set was delayed until after the Christmas holiday season due to covid related production issues um wizards actually did a bunch of stuff after that to try and avoid stuff like this like they they bought a massive amount of paper stock and started distributing all of their manufacturing so it wasn't all in one place in china um and now this time around the only place that they had production issues was in the united states so they had to delay the worldwide release oof yeah that, yeah. <laughs> that hurts okay but, they I mean, tried. I know people who can't get whole kitchens right now, so I guess I shouldn't be so surprised if it's get, if it's getting hard to get books out. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So what's special about Journeys to the Radiant Citadel? Well, there's a lot of special things about this. Uh, probably the most like high-profile thing about it, this is the first time that Wizards has published an, an official adventure written entirely by people of color. So they really wanted to embrace the diversity of the community, diverse ways of storytelling, diverse cultures. And that really shows up in the book here. Um, also less important, but kind of personally fun. Uh, my brother-in-law helped edit the book, which is neat. Oh, that is cool. Yeah. I, that's what really stood out to me because for a long time, I think that D and D has had a Western focus problem. Uh, and this is kind of just a general sort of tabletop fantasy thing is that we, our fantasy tends to focus more on a uh, Western European cultural center of fantasy, you know, the Tolkien elves, knights in armor, that kind of stuff. And we don't really get the other, the other side, like the other, co the other coins of cultures. Um, I believe what it was was black indigenous and people of color were the people who worked on this. So you can see very interesting non-European inspired mythology and, uh, I just think that's really cool. Anything that we can do to shake up the paradigm is is always welcome. But I think part of the difficulty of, of telling stories like this, and so maybe we could talk a little bit about what's in Radiant Citadel. So there are there are thirteen adventures spanning from first to fourteenth level. Um, the first adventure covers levels one and two. Every other adventure is assigned to a level, so two, three, four, all the way to fourteen. You get to thirteen that way. Um, each of them are connected to a civilization, and we'll dive a little bit deeper 
into the idea of civilizations and how they're tied to the citadel. But basically, each of these civilizations has a culture um, attached to each of the adventures. And this is one of the things that I think is really cool about the book is a gazetteer. The gazetteer gives a in-depth guide to that civilization. I didn't look at all of them because I wanted to save some of the adventures that hopefully allow people to DM for me. But I picked a couple to look at thinking maybe I would run these stories. And what jumped out at me is when you looked at the gazetteer, you could see clearly what cultures likely influenced this culture and then the places where maybe it deviates from the history of that culture. And maybe they're trying to tell a richer story, uh, a more forward-looking story. Uh, and I, I really liked that about it. But I say that I say you talk about a lot of fantasy literature, fantasy gaming being based in Western fantasy. I think one of the hard parts of doing this is telling a story about a culture that you don't know a lot about. The only thing you can do is start doing research today. You would always be concerned that you couldn't do it justice. And that's why it was so important to gather people with diverse backgrounds who have history in the area, who understand these cultures and their history to then adapt it to tell the stories they're telling in this book. Yeah, and related to that, uh, I think one of the things that people are probably going to ask, one of the immediate questions that people are going to ask is, oh, so is this just for people of color? Like, can I not use this because, you know, I'm not of that culture and I don't want to offend anyone? Well, uh, fortunately, it is a sensitive issue, and uh, uh, Wizards of the Coast chose to address it in a little disclaimer that they said. And they said, look, you're not a dragon born in real life, but you can still play one. Just like you are not part of these cultures, but you can still play a person from one of these cultures. But just don't stereotype. Don't punch down, lift up, uh, and try to just see people as people and never approach a character or a culture as a way to sort of make fun of that culture or make it derivative. Uh, so I think... In some ways, it, it, don't be afraid to pull from this if you're, you know, white cis male. <laughs> uh, there's something for people here, uh, anybody who wants to delve into it. And that's what's great about this kind of book. And, and that brings us back to the Gazetteers, because the Gazetteers give you enough depth of knowledge about the region, about the culture, that you could build a character that lives in that culture that isn't based on just stereotypes. So even if you recognize where it's coming from, you don't necessarily feel like, well, the only thing I know are these stereotypes. The only, you know, if I want to do a voice, the only thing I could think of is, you know, an accent I saw from a cartoon. You don't have to do that because the gazetteer is going to give you the information you need to respectfully play somebody from the culture in this game. Yeah. And uh, the more we get of this kind of stuff, the more that people can stop uh bringing in stereotypes for their systems like you know the classic trope of arabian nights the desert sort of region or the mayink attack uh sort of thing like the more that people are exposed to this stuff and are more educated on the mythology and the culture of the people who actually live that the more that you can use that without being derivative or stereotypical like you were saying right all right so i, I think we should actually spend more time talking about the radiant citadel yes so what is the radiant citadel it's a building that glows. <laughs> no? no? No. Well, kind of. Uh, yeah, Ash, why so, don't you take this one? So the Radiant Citadel is an extraplanar city. Uh, it is located in the deep ethereal, which, uh, so there's the ethereal plane where if you cast etherealness on yourself, that's where you end up. Like, it's sort of like the border between 
the the uh, planar uh, prime material plane and the the realm of the dead. The deep ethereal is like you have to actually cast plane shift to get to the ethereal realm. Uh, the deep ethereal it's way deep there. You'll find uh, ghosts, spirits. Sometimes they're malicious or malevolent. But uh, this is located. It says that if you try to look for it, you will find it rather quickly. Um, because it is meant to be a refuge for people. Uh, specifically, they it, it acts as a refuge for people from the, around uh, these different uh, cultures that created the Radiant Citadel. It was founded by 27 different civilizations. And at some point, something happened, and they abandoned the city. But uh, they were led by uh, another explorer who I don't want to talk too much about because I don't want to get into spoilers. But uh, she led a group of descendants of 15 of those cultures to reclaim the citadel and sort of, you know, make it, uh, uh, sort of uh, rebuild it. Uh, Sort of rebuild it. So um, they have these different ships, I want to call them. They're more like islands with little crystals that pop out of them that represent different uh, one of the different cultures that uh helped build this citadel so they can at any point get people onto that and go to those places and usually they will try to send out their military called the shield bearers to try and save people who are being victims of a calamity and bring them to the radiant citadel to hopefully offer them a new home yeah so one of the coolest ideas for the radiant citadel is that it is really meant to be a refuge for all. One of the cool places that's listed in the noteworthy sites is the Palace of Exile. So let's say you're from a society or from a civilization that has fallen or is falling, or it isn't safe for you and your people in the place where you formerly lived. There's this idea of the Palace of Exile. It's a place for you to go, and it is held explicitly for people in exile from their homeworld. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, different uh, areas of interest on the Radiant Citadel. One of the major ones is uh, a giant diamond that sort of pierces through the center of the island that the Radiant Citadel is floating on. Uh, It's called the Auroral Diamond. And one of the cool things about it is that it changes colors every so often to a different color uh, for a little while before it will change color again, and it very rarely picks the same color twice. And a lot of people don't really know why it's doing these colors, but people have speculated that each of the colors represents a new civilization that's being born somewhere. And then if it comes back, that's that same civilization falling. But no one's quite sure. But the cool thing about the auroral diamond is what's underneath it. Uh, inside the diamond is a structure called the Preserve of the Ancestors, which is just, it's kind of like a huge greenhouse of just all these different plants and animals, people. It it doesn't have a lot of animals that were native to it, but people have brought endangered species and other things from their plains where, you know, things were being threatened. So it's kind of like an ark in a lot of ways. And in that same preserve of the ancestors, first, that's where the, the council that runs the city, uh, one representative from each of the 15 nations that has been rediscovered, uh, meets. And there are these really cool things called the dawn incarnates. So the dawn incarnates, so each of the civilizations has a gem that is connected to it. That I mentioned before about the ships that have a gem 
piercing it much like the same way the auroral diamond does. Uh, and so those gems are also found inside this preserve in a collective of different spirits from that culture that are sort of bound into the crystals and form a hive mind collective and form different animals. So there's like the amethyst tiger or the onyx bird. Um, and they're, mo they're meant to be a repository of knowledge and wisdom about these different cultures and their histories. And when a new person is elected to the council, they first have to go to all of the surviving Dawn incarnates and face different tests from them in order to be, in order to fulfill the requirements to be added to the council. Now, they have found one of the Dawn incarnates inert from one of the other civilizations that hasn't been rediscovered yet. And so they're hoping that if they find the rest of these, the Dawn incarnates will come back. Yeah, so the implication we talked about, we know 27 civilizations founded it. We know uh, 15 of those civilizations we can confirm are alive and well. And the Radiant Citadel doesn't, uh, the, the book itself, doesn't define what the remaining 12 civilizations are. The details that they give you, one is that we have the Sapphire Vern, uh, which is one of the, it's the dead dawn incarnate. And so they see this and immediately, okay, well, now I know it can die. Um, in the lore that they're giving you, they gave what Asha mentioned a second ago as well, this, this thought that maybe when a color repeats itself in the auroral diamonds, that maybe that means the civilization ended. So it's kind of tying that theme together that this is a, it is a home for all people that puts no person above one another. Um, it's very egalitarian. You know, taxes are meant to take care of everybody. They're super progressive taxes to make sure that, you know, if you have lots, you give lots. If you have little, you give little. There's a home for exiles, right? Um, all of this is tying to the idea of a civilization and a place for all. Uh, well, I can't use the word humanity in this case. What do I? What word do I use? Uh, uh, we peoples. can borrow from all peoples. We can borrow from Shadowrun and say meta humanity. Meta, meta, maybe uh, human, humanoidity. Is that humanoidity? Sure. sure. <laughs> um, but but yeah. So. Seeing that one of the Dawn Incarnates could be dead, like, what caused what? Did this civilization disappear and therefore it's dead? Or did it die and was that tied to ultimately that civilization not surviving? But now the implication is there's still 11 more Dawn Incarnates you would expect to exist that aren't here. And so exactly towards Ash's question, uh, what's interesting, and I think as a DM, as a storyteller, what you could put together here, are there... Other places in the material plane where we should be looking to finding these societies and these civilizations, and when we find them, will we find their dawn incarnates as well? Now, I think the dawn incarnates do appear in at least one of the adventures. I want to say it's the seventh level adventure, but I'm drawing a blank right this second, and I'm not going to spend the next ten minutes flipping through the pages. I'm getting a, I'm, I'm getting thumbs in various directions. That's actually one of the civilizations I read, or the, one of the civilizations, there you go. One of the, <laughs> one of the very few adventures I read was seven, because I have a bunch of level seven characters running around me that I was thinking it'd be fun to run this one shot for. Yeah. Um, I don't think they appear in it. Okay. But, I'm, but your point still stands. We're not going to dig yeah. in, we're not going to answer it right now, but they do appear in the story. Well, the Dawn Incarnates are kind of like quest givers in a way. Like they, uh, they... One of the things that the book states is that the Dawn Incarnates, not all of them are willing to talk to you. Like some of them just flat out won't talk. 
Uh, some of them will only give you the information that you want uh, if you do something for them. Like if you go on a quest or a journey of self-discovery or something like that. And then if you want to talk to a specific spirit that's part of this collective consciousness, that's even more difficult. Um, you have to like know who you want to talk to and you have to cast powerful magic in order to do it. Um, but yeah, it's sort of the thing that it, this is going to be funny, but the thing that the Radiant Citadel kind of reminds me of is uh, the encyclopods from Futurama. It's not a living <laughs> thing, but it does, it sort of acts as an arc, both for animals and cultures, uh, so that those cultures don't die out. Okay, so I have a fry-sized brain. When you say the encyclopods, are these the brains that... No, the encyclopods are the thing in the Into the Wild Green Yonder. They're the big manta ray things that uh, yeah, make the yeah. DNA of any endangered species and put them in this huge dome on its back 100%. where they can okay. just run free. Um, yeah, Futurama's wild. <laughs> it's fantastic. I'm, I'm going through a watch with my kids now. I feel like it's time. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll say, when I read this... A lot of what I was reading reminded me of your theory from Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight Archive, which to me was really cool because I've always read that series and thought, I would love to play a game in this setting and I'm not quite sure how to make it happen. A lot of the, the coolest mechanisms that you saw in the book series are present here. Now, for folks who maybe haven't read all of the books uh, and for folks who haven't read Radiant Citadel, I don't want to ruin any of it, um, but essentially the Citadel itself as well as the idea of like a travel mechanism where I can essentially plane shift to other places in the material plane to immediately get there. And the implications of that for storytelling, for trade, for politics uh, are all really interesting to me. So you mentioned travel. And uh, so the question that you have to ask is, so if someone wants to put this in their world, um, for players to like visit, you don't, you don't want to start them out there. How do they get to the Radiant Citadel? So there are three methods. Uh, the first is the Concord Jewels, which I already mentioned, which are those sort of planar ships that they can use to, which they will, will sometimes appear to a civilization that's in need or going through a catastrophe. Uh, then there are, you can be taken there by the shield bearers if they choose that, that you're worthy of saving or help, um, which kind of goes, to, uh, goes hand and foot with the Concord Jewels, but it doesn't always have to. And uh, the last way is to go through the Passage of Respite, which is the main entrance to the city through the Ethereal Plane. So if you find yourself in the Ethereal Plane, you can go through the Passage of Respite. And that's very important. You have to go through the Passage of Respite. You don't just fly over the walls. Don't plane shift into the city because you could be slapped with huge fines. And if you keep doing it, they'll, they'll banish you from the city. You have to go through the, uh, the Passage uh, of Respite because you have to pay a toll to enter the city. Now, people might be thinking, hey, that's kind of mean to charge a toll to get into the city. But uh, for, from what I understand, in uh, many like medieval era cultures or cultures, medieval era places in the real world, a gate toll to get into a large city was a pretty common method of taxation. Yeah, and again, it goes back to the egalitarian thing. Uh, if you are a person who is desperate, who doesn't have a lot to offer, they're probably not going to charge you the toll. But if you're a person who is wealthy, they're going to charge you a lot. So it just kind of depends on who you are. It goes back to that egalitarian. But there is a blemish on this perfect society 
or at least a threat to it. And that is the Keening Gloom. Randall, you want to talk about the Keening Gloom? Yeah. Uh, so really neat idea. And I, I couldn't completely grasp it as I was reading it. There is this almost like glowing cyclone hovering next to the city. It never goes away. It's always there. Um, sometimes it moves closer. Sometimes it moves farther away. And there's a real concern. Some people who live in, in the Radiant Citadel for a period of time eventually choose to leave because they are afraid that eventually the Keening Gloom is going to collapse onto the city and destroy it. Um, one of the things they talked about in the book is when the explorers first rediscovered it, right? So there was this rumor that this place existed. They needed a refuge to get to. Um, they, they finally get there. And it was actually surrounded by this cyclone. Now, it wasn't clear on how they got through eventually, but apparently they were able to get through. Maybe it moved off to the side again, but it's this ever-looming threat to the, to the city itself. Yeah, and there's also a threat that if... Uh, so, like I mentioned before, the Council of Ancestors, I believe that's what it's called. I'll, you have to correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but... Feel free to at me. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the council uh, is composed of 15 people, each from the rediscovered cultures. The speakers. And the speakers. Thank you. There we the go. Speakers, um, uh, and so if one of them steps down, they serve for a, a term of 10 years. And if one of them steps down or dies and that person isn't replaced within 30 days, everything in the city starts to shut down. The ways for it to generate food, light, water, all of that starts to shut down. The same thing happens is those speakers leave the Citadel for longer than 30 days. So the Citadel is very much tied to those, the, those speakers. And that's kind of why it, it does, it comes back to the idea of, well, it's not just a ceremony why you have to get permission from the Dawn Incarnates to be a speaker. It's not just ceremony. It's an actual functioning part of making sure that the Citadel actually functions. Okay, so yeah, That's more about the speakers. There's a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah, it's really cool. They are elected. So there is democracy. If you're from a society um, which that speaker is representing, you would vote for that speaker. But let's say you're from a society that isn't part of the original 27 and therefore isn't part of this 15. You get to choose who you, basically what speaker do you want to vote for? Essentially, what society do you want to align with? And then you still get to have a vote for who's the speaker. If, if that person wins the speaker through democracy, they then have to go and talk to the Don Incarnates to ultimately get the final approval. So it's kind of a two-stage. Uh, first, the politics, and then they judge your character. Maybe we should flip it, but eh, here we are. <laughs> and, and as Ash pointed out, like, it's super critical that these people be, um, let's say, good of heart. One of the things they talk about is they fight violently. They, they argue violently. I shouldn't say they, they fight violently because okay. that's literal violence. Um, <laughs> let's, let's try that again. They argue vivaciously. Yeah, and each one of them gets a, ve gets a very strong veto power. So it, uh, essentially, if, they, if something does... That way you can sort of get rid of any sort of alliances that form within, like, between different cultures. If, the, if people are trying to abuse their power that way, the speaker can just be like, cool, I'm going to go to another plane for 30 days. Um, so uh, well, that is a very strong veto power that they have. I, I read it as more than that, that they can literally, they can make the decision to shut down all of the Concord Jewels 
and therefore not allow goods to travel back and forth from other societies into the city. Did you that read that the same power. way? Yeah, no, that is another power that they have. Okay, I just good. forgot about it. But what uh, the last interesting thing that I want to say about the speakers is that the way that they meet is also really interesting. So remember I mentioned the preserve of the ancestors. It's not just a greenhouse. It's also their state building because in the center is a large amphitheater. And that's where the counselors will meet and argue. And anybody in, who lives in the Citadel is free to come in and watch and give their opinions. Um, so it is very much a dem democratic sort of system, not just a representative sort of system. An open democracy. An open yeah. democracy. Yeah, so to talk through the implications of that, though. So the ability that if, if I don't like something that's happening, if I disagree with a decision that's being made, I have the ability to shut down the city effectively, um, to not allow goods to come and go, which means that all taxes and tariffs are also there. We can't fund what we're trying to accomplish. Um, they say that the shutdowns aren't something that happen often because the threat of this are enough to make them have their conversations, have their disagreements, come to a conclusion. Two interesting pieces, and this is where like, I really see this as aspirational. I think that they were trying to write something beautiful. And, and I think in your storytelling, you could use this to put together really beautiful stories. Each of the speakers represents a different society with different culture, and it would be very difficult ultimately to find like homogeneity in, in the conversation to agree to ultimately what are they trying to accomplish. In addition to this, each speaker is loyal to the Radiant Citadel, not to their home civilization. So if you are a speaker, you are trying to represent your people as best as you can, but putting the interest of the Radiant Citadel first, while also dealing with all of the politics of your home society, pushing on what they need from the Radiant Citadel. That's a super stressful situation if you think about it. Yeah, so, I think it even mentions, sorry, it even mentions that the speakers, if given the choice between aiding their for, where the civilization that they came from or the Citadel, they must always choose the Citadel. Exactly. Yeah, so I think there's a lot here for storytellers. Um, I, I think if you're a person wanting to put together a story that kind of fits within what we've talked about, 100% just for the lore Radiant Citadel is pretty awesome. Yeah, uh, yeah, the lore is really great, and it's a great jumping off point for the remainder of the book, which is the adventures, which is probably why people are looking at the book. Like, the Radiant Citadel as a setting is absolutely fantastic, but the way this thing is pitched is, Here's your anthology of plane-spanning adventures. To, to be clear, we didn't want to go super deep into the adventures because we figured a lot of you mm -hmm. at home might actually want to play them. So yeah. what yes. we're going to do here, we're going to try to stay spoiler-free, stick with us, come all the way through with us. We're going to talk in, in vagueness about some of the things that we liked and didn't like. But yeah, we're not going to ruin any stories for you. Yeah, the, so we mentioned earlier that the adventures run from levels 1 to 14. There are 13 adventures. Um, they do a lot of things very, very well. Like the adventure design has improved since the beginning of fifth edition, and it's really showing here. Um, NPCs almost always have the traits, ideals, bonds, flaws to help you describe them. Almost every NPC has accompanying art. Um, every adventure comes with a gazetteer for the setting, like we said earlier. Each one of these adventures is completely standalone, so you can run them as standalone adventures or just back-to-back -back as a series of short adventures. I wouldn't quite call it a campaign because there's, there's nothing actually linking 
the plots of the individual stories together. So this is very similar to other adventure anthologies like Canopy Mysteries or Tales from the Awning Portal. But each of the adventures is self-contained and a lot of fun, honestly. They take you some really, really cool places. You get to see some cool stuff. You get to do cool things. Like, the the first one has a Wild Beyond the Witchlight style, I don't want to say carnival, because it's kind of a, like, game thing at a night market. There, There's, like, an Iron Chef thing where you have to kill and cook <laughs> a giant shrimp. <laughs> uh the like one of the adventures takes you to the far realms there's a couple murder mysteries and like a lot of interplanar travel uh one of the adventures you get to dance with capybaras like there there's some cool stuff in here there's a lot of fun ideas there's a friendly skeleton yeah friendly bones (laughs) yeah some of the things that i liked from the adventures you talked about fitting it into your own game one of the things that i thought was cool is depending on the setting you're playing in the adventures will give you ideas for hooks for like well here's here's where this particular city state or this particular society might exist in everon or where it might exist in forgotten realms so the idea being that there are multiple settings in dnd 5e not everybody's playing in the same setting but if the lore of the Radiant Citadel is that it links you to places in the material plane. Um, here's where you might put this place. Uh, and so immediately it can fit without kind of, you, you're not going to have to do a lot of twisting to make it fit the lore that you've already been building. It's just going to fit. Yeah. Weirdly, the adventures actually don't do a lot to directly tie themselves into the Radiant Citadel. Like each adventure begins with possible uh, player hooks to bring the player characters into the adventure. And the one sentence, thing for radiant citadel is just if you come from the radiant citadel you arrive here that's it considering how much detail they put in everything else that seems kind of shallow but it like if your players are here for that kind of episodic self-contained adventure feel like yeah it's gonna feel fine and just say that the radiant citadel is where they go home to at the end of the adventure well actually um i believe in the radiant citadel section they do have a table that uh, gives adventure hooks for each of those different adventures in the Radiant Citadel. I could be wrong about that. But um, it it is not as detailed as some of the others, for sure. But yeah, no, I like that you can just kind of plop these down into whatever setting that you want. And it is important to note, the the Radiant Citadel is not uh, um, multiversal. So it's not going throughout the multiverse. It is specifically on one universe and it is connected to different civilizations on the prime material plane so all of these civilizations exist on the or existed on the prime material plane so yeah uh if you're if you're like ooh, this is sort of a soft planescape sort of thing it's not that all right so let's go around let's talk impressions um i really like it from a, a dming standpoint i would love to use the radiant citadel as much as i would like to actually use the adventures themselves yeah uh i'm so I'm currently wrapping up a, a campaign that I had been running for a long time, and I am doing a sequel in Pathfinder, um, and I'm pulling inspiration from Radiant Citadel for this. Um, obviously, I can't, you know, port it directly because it's Pathfinder as opposed to Pi-V. But, um, yeah, like, this is just such a cool concept that I really want to just use, and it makes a lot of sense to just... You can... Because it is not bound to any specific location it is just the deep ethereal like every world has an ethereal plane um 
So yeah, you can just kind of put this wherever and it probably won't affect your lore too much. Yeah, I like this a lot as something to keep in my back pocket. Like all those adventures, they're not one, like they're not one session length, like maybe two to three sessions each, but that's a great thing to keep in your pocket for like, oh yeah, my my regular DM is out of town for a couple of weeks, so somebody can grab an adventure and run it for the group. You can drop in brand new characters and it'll work just fine. So I love having that option. I love a good self-contained short adventure. So I'm really excited to have this on hand. Awesome. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcast and rate us on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. It's a quick, free way to support the podcast and helps us to reach new listeners. You can find links in the show notes. You'll find affiliate links for source books and other materials linked in the show notes, as well as on RPGBot.net. Following these links helps us to make this show happen every week. Well, someone picked the perfect time to flush that toilet.